The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. The media landscape is changing before our eyes, but one constant is live sports programming, and it's still commanding a premium. As media companies fight cord cutting, ESPN isn't shying away from the problem. The sports media juggernaut is leaning into digital and looking to capitalize on this change in how people watch sports, both in their homes and on the go. This week, I sat down with ESPN president Jimmy Patero for an exclusive interview to talk with him about this change in the industry. He's been at the helm for more than a year now and has overseen the launch of their streaming service, ESPN Plus, as well as a rise in operating income last quarter. I began by asking him if it was fair to call this a turnaround. I wouldn't characterize it as a turnaround. I would characterize it as um, consistent progress. And... You know, we've been very clear. Our mission is serve the sports fan anytime, anywhere. And that includes, um, you know, some some core basic principles. Um, My job is to provide clarity. When we first started, I sat down with the team and I said, um, let's let's give our group of employees three or four um, areas to really focus on. Mm -hmm. And so we we honed in on direct-to-consumer. You know, you mentioned ESPN+. Um, huge priority for not just ESPN, but the Walt Disney Company, uh, expanding our audience, being more relevant to a younger generation, being more relevant to women. Um, and, and so we have all hands on deck in that department. And then innovating, you know, which is really um, has been um, part of the DNA of, of ESPN for 40 years. We're celebrating our 40th anniversary this September. Um, but if you ask me really, really what really defines ESPN, it's innovation, you know, being the first in, in the sports industry, trying new things, not being afraid to fail, but learning and getting better. All right. So let's talk about one of the innovations, of course, which is the streaming business. Yes. What can you tell me about the two million plus subscribers to ESPN Plus? Are they younger than ESPN viewers? Do they have the basic cable package? What are they watching when they're streaming? Yeah. So 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 far, so good. We, we are at well, we announced several months ago. Uh, that we exceeded two, 2 million subscribers. We feel really, really good about that. At the same time, this, this really is the first inning for us. And, you know, every, every deal that we're negotiating right now, we are looking at how do we acquire rights, not just for the linear package, but for ESPN+. And so we, over the past couple of weeks, we've announced a few new deals. AAC, um, the, big, the Big 12 Network, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the Big 12 Conference, um, and, and so you, I would expect that, that you will continue to see more deals where we are acquiring rights um, for that platform. In, in, terms of, in terms of our prioritization, you mentioned it. Yes, we are trying to attract a younger audience. Um, we're, we're trying to attract a younger audience on air, but we're also running parallel paths here where we're trying to um, create products, 
uh, like ESPN Plus that speak directly to that younger generation. And, and we feel we're onto something with ESPN Plus. Can you take more risks when you're building an audience than when you're trying to retain one? I wonder how much more experimenting yeah. there's, there is yeah. when it comes to ESPN Plus. No, that's a great, great question. Obviously, when you're on air, when you're on traditional television, everyone is seeing the same thing. The promise of the Internet is right content to the right user at the right time. You and I can get different things. My 15-year-old son and I can experience different things within the ESPN app or on ESPN+. Plus. So, so that, is, that is the luxury that we have. We can, we can present you know, a different experience to different people at the right time. Mm-hmm. And so we're starting to see that play out right now through our so digital offerings. Talk about some of the specific partnerships that you're looking to ensure ESPN Plus is in touch with the younger audience. Your 15-year-old son, for instance. Top-ranked, top-ranked yep. boxing, boxing. Yep. is one of them. So top, combat. I, 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 would, I would bundle it oh, into okay. combat. for So top-ranked boxing, um, UFC, we signed a mega, uh, two deals with them over the past year. Um, and definitely, you know, much younger audience. If you look at the UFC audience, I believe it's, it's right around, the average age is right around 40. And, and so we like that. NBA has, has a younger audience. So you know, we have a massive partnership with the NBA. We'd love to do more with them, not just for, for traditional television, but also for um, our digital offerings. Okay. Um, at what point would you have visibility into whether revenue uh, growth from streaming and programming expansion can offset any TV subscriber losses? that you've been experiencing. What's the tipping point there? Yeah. So look, we are, like I mentioned before, our, our, our goal is to run parallel paths here. You know, we want to provide as many access points to our content as possible. So we have this traditional TV business, mm-hmm. um, which is still in the vast majority of, of, of U.S. households and still offers great value um, to, to the customer. At the same time, you know, we're, we're putting a lot of resources and a lot of investment into our direct-to-consumer business, ESPN+. And so we, we, we're, we're super excited about what's happening on the direct-to-consumer side. We are running these parallel paths, and we want to make sure that our customer has as many access points to our content. How will ESPN+, Plus be integrated into Hulu, which Disney now has control over? Yeah, so, so we're looking at... Um, Across the Walt Disney Company, in terms of the direct-to-consumer environment, we have three different um, products, two of which are in market right now. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, Hulu, ESPN Plus, of course, and then um, the, the Disney Plus product that will launch um, this fall. So we're, um, you know, ultimately we will get to a scenario where we, we will present a, a bundle to the customer. We want to take the friction out of the process, mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that um, it is as easy as possible to get access to all three products. Let's talk a little bit about sports rights, because the modern economics of sports is built on the idea that live sports rights only go in one direction, and that is to go up. Is there any evidence that that's changing, that it's stalling? So, look, we, um, there's, there's, there's a lot more competition today than there has been in the past. We all, we all know that. You have Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, the fangs. Right. Um, you know, some of them are already making investments in the sports space. You have new sports startups um, that are investing in the space. Um, they're not they're, necessarily bidding for NFL games yet, though. Well, well, they're not available right now, right? So we don't know what's going to happen when they do become available. Um, but we are, they are well-funded. Even the smaller startups, they are well-funded, and they are being quite aggressive in the space. So that being said, we've always had competition. ESPN has always had competition, and we have the best rights acquisition team in the, in the industry. We take a lot of pride in, in the discipline we have in terms of going out there and acquiring rights. Uh, 
you know, we're, we're, um, we're pretty confident in terms of the value that we present to our partners. You know, if you ask me, what's, 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 what are our top priorities? Included in that list would be league relationships, our partner relationships. And so my job is to make sure that, that we are continuing to develop, cultivate, build out those relationships mm -hmm. so that when we do sit down at the table, these, um, these partners want to be in business with us. And when you look at the Walt Disney Company in general, I really like our hand. We have ESPN. Um, we have all the networks that make up ESPN. We have ABC. We have the synergy that, that the Walt Disney Company brings across other businesses like theme parks, et cetera. We have the best production team in the business. Um, the promotion, the quality of content that our league partners get from us is unmatched, in my opinion. So there's a lot of, to leverage there, certainly. I know you're a data guy. You rely on data to make your decisions. Correct. How do you interpret the data from Disney's sale of the Fox uh, regional sports networks for less than what the market expected? Does it suggest that sports rights may have peaked and they're going to start going down? Look, for, first off, um, the ESPN team was, was not involved in, in, in the RSN sale. Sure. Um, that, that, that was a process that was run by um, the Disney corporate team, and, and, and for good reason. Um, strict regulatory guidelines, um, and so as a result, that, that process was run by, by that group. I will tell you that I, I think that sale demonstrates the power of, of live sports. And it, just to back up for a second, if you look at a world where um, so many things are in decline, mm -hmm. you know, look at live sports, you know, couple of examples. Major League Baseball last year was up on ESPN. NFL was up 8%, in fact. Um, UFC has been up over 100% for us year over year. College Hoops was up 15 or 16% for us. So in this world of live events, we're actually seeing consistent growth across our key categories. Um, so I believe that um, live sports will continue to be valuable. Um, and you know, we are very interested, as I mentioned before, we are very interested in acquiring, continuing to acquire live rights, not just for our traditional platform, like, like television, but for also our direct-to-consumer business. I don't question the value of the live sports, but is there a chance that fees could actually go down, though, for, for some of those assets, for instance, a non-Power 5 conferences? I mean, because obviously it's in your interest to an extent for the, for the fees to go down, because it costs you a tremendous amount. I, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I don't know the answer to that. I will tell you that, um, the, the, the power of, of live sports mm -hmm. um, is, is, is incredibly apparent. And, and I don't believe that that only applies to the major sports like, like NFL, Major League Baseball, and, and NBA. Um, I, I believe that that also applies to what you could arguably call some of the more niche sports, mm -hmm. especially as these platforms are popping up um, that are very focused on aggregating rights for, for those, those, those smaller conferences, those smaller leagues. All right, let's talk about esports because obviously this is an area of tremendous growth. Yeah. Revenue projected to top a billion dollars globally this year. Clearly the domain of a younger audience. How do you look to make it more relevant to a broader sports audience? Yeah, no, look, that, that's a great question. Again, going back to my point before on, on audience expansion, if you ask me the levers that we can pull, esports is, is, is definitely one of them. That being said, we have been in this space mm -hmm. for many years. We have a, a, a vertical on ESPN.com that is focused on esports that, by the way, is growing 20 to 30% year over year in terms of reach and engagement. So we are hyper-focused on this area. We partnered with Activision last year um, for their finals last summer, and we saw incredible reach, incredible engagement across our various platforms. So we are all in. Just, just a couple of weekends ago, we launched our Collegiate Esports Championship, which did quite well for us. You will, you will continue to see us invest in, in this esports category, primarily because we feel like it's an opportunity to reach that younger audience. And to your point, 
not just reach the younger audience in terms of the core gamer, but also reach the younger audience that might be interested from a casual perspective. So we have a partnership with, with, with Madden. Mm -hmm. And so the idea there is, okay, let's, let's, let's attract our core NFL fan and introduce him or her um, to gaming content on ESPN. That feels like a natural extension to us. Okay, so cross-pollination essentially. Exactly. Let's talk about sports betting. Um, what is ESPN doing to capitalize on the wave of legalized sports betting that is now out there? Yeah, so, so our focus is on news and information. Going back, we serve the sports fan anytime, anywhere. That includes okay. the sports fan that's interested in being more educated on, on sports betting. We have a show that we just launched um, called The Daily Wager. It's on ESPN News. It runs five days a week. Uh, and it's a show that feels like it's been on, quite frankly, for, for five years. We take a lot of pride in that. I would expect that you will see more and more of that type of programming across not just ESPN News, but across our other, our other shows. So Scott Van Pelt at Midnight has, has a sports center that has been covering um, sports betting for years through, through a segment called Bad Beats. We have a podcast. We have an ESPN Plus show. We are heavily invested in this space already, but again, our focus is serving the, 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 the sports fan with news and information. We are not a book. We are not going to be taking people's money. Okay, now one small part of the massive Disney and Fox deal is that Disney now owns a stake in the fantasy sports betting site DraftKings yeah. through one of the Disney subsidiaries. Yeah. Bob Iger has made it really clear that he does not see Disney getting into the business of gambling. But is there room for ESPN and DraftKings to work closely? So, so we acquired that stake as a part of the 21st Century mm -hmm. Fox acquisition. Um, it's a minority stake. Um, you know, Bob has been consistent. I've been consistent on this point. We, are, we, within our own properties, are not a sports book. We are not taking people's money. Our focus on our own properties is serving the sports fan with quality content, quality news, quality information with personality, and that will not change. Now, Fox Sports plans to launch a betting app in conjunction with the Stars Group. Could you see down the road doing something similar? So, no. Uh, we are, we've been pretty clear. Uh, we do not have any plans to take people's money or to be a, to be a book. Okay. Yep. The analytics and the data, though, that you can get from the ownership in DraftKings could be incredibly valuable as you build out your content as it relates to, to fantasy betting and sports betting. Right. What do you plan to do with that? So, so in terms of the analytics, the data, that is exactly why direct-to-consumer is such a huge priority for us. In fact, if you were to ask me, you know, within ESPN and across ESPN and the direct-to-consumer and international segment, our number one priority right now is direct-to-consumer, and that's in part because we want access to that customer. We want that data. So I would say, if you bring this back to our focus on news and information, serving the sports fan, including in the betting space, we can, we can generate that data mm -hmm. through, our, through our, our custom programming, through a show like Daily Wager. Or if, if we were to take a show and put it on our direct-to-consumer platform, we can generate that data that way. Got it. Final question to you, Jimmy. I yeah. know that you spoke this week at a sports Emmy event honoring Dick Vitale. And, of course, Dick said he wants to be announcing basketball games until he's 100 years old. Are yeah. you ready to let him do that on ESPN? We love Dick. He's, uh, look, when we think about ESPN at its best, you know, Dick comes to mind. He's Mount Rushmore for, for, for ESPN. And, you know, I, yes, I had an opportunity to speak at that event. And what I said to him is um, we take so much pride in having him a part of this team. And we expect him, we, we expect him to be a part of this team for a long time. Last week, the College Board, the company that administers the SAT, the exam taken by about 2 million high school students each year, announced a major change to their assessment process. For the first time, more than just students' math, verbal, and writing skills would be taken into account. 
The SAT will also include a new so-called adversity score that takes students' hardships into account by looking at their high school as well as the crime and poverty rates of their neighborhoods. So we spoke with College Board CEO David Coleman about that decision and began by asking him to explain how this adversity score is calculated for students and how it'll make standardized testing more fair. I hate to disappoint you at the start, but uh, we're not providing an individual score for each student on their adversity. We're providing a general context. So the only thing students provide that's personal to them is their test score. We then give admissions officers general information about their high school and about their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So it would be the same for all the kids in that school, the same for all the kids in that neighborhood, not individual information, not private information. And But we use that to give context because what we're seeing is if you look at the SAT score in context of the neighborhood and school, you can witness a third thing, which is resourcefulness. Mm. Those students who do much with not being given as much. That's fascinating that you're managing to build this in. You've already been testing it, you've been piloting it. How have you tinkered with what you've been looking at? How has the pilot helped you decide how to do this adversity scoring? It's a wonderful question. Schools today, colleges today, try to get school profiles from schools. So they already try to, from the high schools that send them students, get a sense of what kind of high schools they are. And admissions officers worked with us to say, what would you really like to know about high schools? Like how many opportunities there are for advanced work or the kind of educational attainment or other features. So we worked with admissions officers to get a common profile so they could compare more easily. And then we asked them what kind of factors about a neighborhood would really help you understand your students. And these were often things they were trying to collect but struggling to collect on their own because there are lots of colleges. So really we're giving them a shared evidence base for something they've long looked at. And let me just give you one example. Uh, we partnered with a college that just recruited a young woman from Mississippi. Her SAT scores were just about the same as other applicants. They're on average the same as the applicant pool. But when she, they looked at the context of this, she happens to be a young white woman in a rural school, mm-hmm. uh, she scored 400 points higher than any other person in that school. Wow. She, it is a, a community rife with poverty a school that doesn't offer a lot of advanced courses, but nonetheless, she achieved all this. So it allows, it's just a context, a general context that allows the SAT score to come to a clear light. Okay, so admissions committees will get this score and they can use it to help them evaluate the student. What about the student themselves? Will they be able to see the score from their neighborhood? Yeah, I, you know, we're thinking about it. We just disclosed today on our website exactly how we calculate the neighborhood characteristics and school characteristics, because we don't want this to be another black box. So it's open to everybody. Okay. And in a word, maybe we'll share it. It'll be no surprise to them. It's not something about them. It's just how their school stacks up to other schools and how their neighborhood. But I will tell you that what is not surprising to families is they have limited means. They know that very well. They mm-hmm. don't need the college board or anyone else to tell them that. What's exciting is, to, is for admissions people to see the achievement of students side by side with that so they can see those unusually distinctive kids. But yes, we will consider if it helps people to share that general information. Because as long as it's not available to students and their families right now, this has huge implications because it becomes a factor that the colleges use to admit students. And of course, families make decisions on where to live, whether to send their kids to public or private school, based on these kinds of things. Except just to tell you, like if you were deciding, for example, to go to a higher resource school for your child, this really wouldn't affect you because those better resources are also going to help your child excel and perform better. So the index doesn't, this, this tool doesn't mean it's better to go to this school than another because really all it's saying is with more resources, kids are likely to have more that they can show. And so it wouldn't necessarily be sane to change your, your real estate plans based on it. Of course, what is front of mind for many is the college scandal, as we've seen many a celebrity up in front of the courts yeah. of late. Do you think this can help 
prevent those sorts of scenarios in some way? We've taken a security step to, to close a loophole that a couple of celebrities used to, to try to cheat on the SAT. So that we've fixed, and that's very specific, and I could get into that. It's about monitoring a certain kind of testing situation more carefully. Okay. So that we've done. But I don't think that's why America cared about the Varsity Blues scandal. I'm afraid that they care less about a few celebrities breaking the rules than a feeling the whole system's rigged. And if you want to go a little more deep with me, the real reason we're working on colleges with this is there's so much more talent in this country than we can see. Admissions officers can only visit so many schools. We have got to find ways to see students of exceptional talent, whatever race they are from. I want to be very clear on that. That's within the Asian community, the Native American community, the Latino community. These are all big and diverse communities. Mm -hmm. And within them, there are students who, with a lot less, achieve a great deal. But they can be invisible if you look at test scores alone. David, does the adversity score apply to international students? Because we know that colleges like this demographic because they pay more and they help subsidize lower income students. So does it apply in that We're case? figuring out exactly how it should. And again, if you don't mind, it's really not an adversity score for each kid. I'm just trying to clarify because sure, sure. the news has been misleading. It's a general context in which kids fall. I pray that as United States universities have the room to recruit more low-income students internationally, this would be more relevant. Mm. In perfect candor, most of the kids being recruited from international students would be at the highest levels yes. of, so it would be a little less relevant thus far, but someday, wouldn't it be wonderful if we have the resources in this country to be drawing not only on wealthy international students, but a broader spectrum, and then we would have to do that. I sort of find this actually is such a positive conversation <laughs> that we're all having. What about um, the ways in which you're preventing any sort of adverse uses of, of testing and in ensuring that yeah. you're saying that you've closed the loopholes that people yeah. can cheat? What other ways are we going to see changes, do you think, to ensure that this system, new system, can't be gamed? Yeah. I think that in perfect candor, uh, there'll always be some group that will take extraordinary measures to cheat for their children. But America has a much different problem today. There are really at least two worlds in this country, one of the top 20 to 30 percent that invests enormous resources in their children, not breaking any rules, mm. but a very different world than the rest 70, the vast majority of people live in. And so this is trying to illuminate that whole 70 percent. And there'll be an edge of cheating somewhere, but my core task is to make sure those kids are seen. David, final question to you. More colleges, including the University of Chicago, are choosing to go optional when it comes to considering standardized test scores like the SAT. Make the case for why the SAT is still necessary. Mm. Two reasons. You won't see that young woman in Mississippi without seeing her achievement as shown by the SAT. She's using it when combined with context to say, let me in. I'm distinctive, see me. And she uses the SAT to do that. The second reason, frankly, is both grades. If you don't use tests, you only rely on grades. And those, frankly, have their problems, too. I would never just rely on the test. I would never just rely on grades. Because we see grades rising at wealthy schools much faster than test scores, which suggests grade inflation is an issue. So wait, one, one final question, Please, because I have a kid who's a sophomore in yeah, high school. Yeah. How quickly is this going to be implemented? It's gradually being piloted in schools. So I think that your, your student might, you know, your, your kid might encounter this. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to overdo this, folks. It isn't a massive new factor in admissions. It's always been true of college admissions that they've looked for kids who have overcome challenges. Mm -hmm. Often they only relied on the personal essay or other sources of information. We're just giving them a slightly more careful way of looking at that. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. A recent Supreme Court ruling in Mexico is drawing big cheers from the marijuana industry. In a landmark decision, the high court gave a green light for people to grow marijuana for personal use. Some are hoping the change, along with Canada's decision to legalize recreational sales, could put pressure on their American neighbors to do the same at the federal level. So we spoke with Vivian Azer, a senior analyst at Cowan, about what the industry implications would be for Mexico fully legalizing marijuana. It's a very exciting development to make the second country in North America to nationally legalize adult-use cannabis. Um, the Canadians have been focused um, on the Latin American market. Mexico has been on um, the watch list. You've got several of the Canadian LPs that are already establishing uh, low-cost production assets in Colombia, which is an export-only market. And we envision that some of that supply would certainly um, be directed towards Mexico. What about the retail market? Uh, that we, saw, we saw a lot of hiccups, particularly when Canada uh, legalized, that we just really weren't getting the kind of retail uh, exposure that I think some people had thought we would get. So fundamentally, the problem with the Canadian rollout was that it was managed at the provincial level, consistent with how uh, the Canadians regulate alcohol. Um, but some provinces were, were more ready than others. Um, so you can see meaningful contrasts in the revenue trajectory for Alberta, which has um, you know a, a much larger number of stores as compared to in Ontario, where um, they didn't even have their first store until April 1st. So it's notable that you've recently reduced the total addressable market for Canada for 2019, but by 2025, you're still standing by this $12 billion Canadian dollar overall market. And you've got a great report out talking about just how many adults are actually using cannabis in some shape or form in Canada. Can you talk us through those sorts of numbers? Yeah, absolutely. So today we published a report with the findings of a proprietary survey that we conducted in Alberta and Ontario. It was 1,700 consumers. And one of the big takeaways from us was um, that incidence was much higher. So that's the percentage of adults that are willing to admit in the survey that they they have used cannabis in the past month was uh, substantially higher than what we see in the government reported data, um, which suggests to us that there are still cannabis consumers hiding in the woodwork. Is it possible that the actual number is higher than that because maybe they didn't want to, uh, maybe there were some users who didn't want to tell the truth to your survey? Oh, gosh. Well, the, the response rate we got was almost 2x um, what Health Canada gets from a national level. Um, our survey cohort did skew a little bit younger, but I, I'd be surprised if it's even higher than 40%. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I saw a story recently, uh, Vivian, from The New York Times. It kind of talked about the illicit market uh, in California and this idea that even with legalization, you still have a lot of people gravitating, uh, uh, still sort of selling, I guess, uh, in the shadows. The part of the issue was that some of these growers, some of these sellers didn't want to deal with the regulatory aspects, the paperwork of having to sign up. And I'm wondering, where do you see uh, where we get to sort of a balance where maybe some of the folks who have been operating on the illegal side are willing to sort of come into the fold uh, with uh, whatever state or jurisdiction uh, is actually uh, allowing them to sell legally? 
Well, we th- do you think that would happen over time, in particular, if um, better enforcement was a motivating factor? For the time being, one of the remedies that's been discussed in um, the California market has been a temporary reprieve on taxes to, to lower taxes temporarily. That should narrow the price gaps because the price gaps are very wide between the legal and illicit market, and, and that's uh, keeping consumers in the illicit market. Which companies at the moment are really managing to get where they need to be in terms of the size of the market? Which companies are managing to build the moats that are necessary and be ahead of the curve, considering the valuations at where they stand currently? Our top pick, Aurora, and then um, Canopy, where we also have an outperform rating. Both of those companies are on track. They're still building out uh, their cultivation capacity, but they're both on track to, to produce about half a million kilograms when at scale. Vivian, have we seen any data yet showing a market change in alcohol consumption Mm. where people have the option now to consume legal recreational cannabis instead? We think in Canada you could very well be seeing um, the first indications of that. In the first quarter, beer volumes in Canada fell 4%, mm. and they've really just been getting kind of worse month over month. In the month of, Mar- in the month of March, beer volumes are down almost 7% in Canada. Uh, so, Vivian, I mean, right now we're looking at pictures of somebody, you know, sort of cutting leaves and, uh, you know, growing and cultivating these uh, plants. But I'm wondering, when do we move to a stage where we're seeing a lot more stuff done in the lab within, so we have maybe some more, you know, proprietary type of uh, oils and other compounds it might give some of these companies a little bit of an edge. Kronos does have an agreement with Ginkgo Bioworks. They're working on creating um, synthetic cannabinoids for about uh, 10 or so, starting with THC and CBD, but then really moving into some of the, the more rare cannabinoids like a CBG or a THCV. That's a three-year um, agreement that they have, um, and we're just uh, finishing kind of year one. We haven't heard anything there, um, so that's certainly one way to to create novel um, extracts is through um, biosynthesis. The other way is to, of course, use the, the, the plant matter itself and use one of the different extraction methodologies, be it CO2 or ethanol. We know that the Canadian LPs are working aggressively on scaling up um, their extraction capabilities. While they are using those processes already to develop oils and capsules, the demand is going to be far greater when you need that THC distillate to also go into the novel form factors that will hopefully be legal by the end of 2019, namely beverages, edibles, and vape. Finally, we wrapped up with a look at a major merger in the marijuana space. Canadian cannabis producer Canopy Growth is looking to buy out American cannabis seller Acreage Holdings. The two companies came out with information circulars ahead of the June 19th shareholders vote, promising the deal will create the world's preeminent cannabis company. So we spoke with the two company chiefs shepherding the deal, Bruce Linton, founder, chairman, and co-CEO of Canopy Growth, as well as Kevin Murphy, CEO of Acreage Holdings. We started with a question for the Acreage Holdings CEO and asked him about some of the main criticism against the merger, that once legalization passes in the U.S., his company will be worth a lot more than it is today. My company will be worth a lot more in conjunction with Canopy. My goal is to protect shareholder value, not only maximize upside, but also protect downside. This deal with Canopy, in many respects, de-risks our business. It also fortifies our business immediately with the ability to access Canopy's brands, their cannabis know-how, their technology. They've spent hundreds of millions of dollars of capital building an infrastructure that we can utilize right away before we ultimately come together. 
So we have the opportunity to build this company, ultimately come together and be the global dominant player in cannabis. Now, for people who haven't been following this deal for a long time, it's highly unusual because it's uh, it could close over how many years is it? Does it have to close uh, eight years, something like that? Seven and a half. All contingent on marijuana essentially being de facto legalized or permissible at the federal level in the U.S. What's your what do you think is a realistic timetable for something like that to happen before the legal threshold that that that's written in the contract is actually met? Well, it's a, it, it, it's a first time and really one of its kind. Um, and so that's where we need to educate the public as to exactly what we're looking to accomplish. And I believe it's going to happen much sooner than people anticipate. And the reason for that is 65% of Americans are looking for legalized cannabis, of which 56% are Republicans. We've seen a sea change socially in the United States. And today, 33 states have a medical program, of which 10 states have an adult use program. The amount of jobs we're creating, it's the fastest industry growth in the United States. And we believe it's going to happen much sooner. And I believe it's going to be actually a 2020 election mm. year debate. Mm. And I believe it's not whether you're Democratic or Republican. It's who gets credit for legalizing cannabis. Interesting. Bruce, what's more interesting with the whole setup of this deal is you in a filing today mm-hmm. put out with Canopy saying that you might even get rid of that condition entirely, that it needs, it's bound to U.S. legalization. Yeah. But that depends on the stock exchanges, right? Right. So the way we set it up, um, the goal was enter the U.S., but do it in a way that we didn't go offside with New York Stock Exchange, Constellation, Bank of America, all the key actors. Um, so we set two conditions. One, if it's federally permissible, but also we have the right to act if and when we want it. So suppose it became socially more normal or it became uh, a bit more easy. We don't have to wait. And so the, that was really important to us because it gives us certainty that this will happen. Uh, we just don't know the terms under which it would occur. Uh, so I want to expand this uh, discussion out away from just the merger itself. Yeah. I mean, we had that farm bill last year, which was obviously was a big win for hemp yeah. farmers. But then there was still that open question as to how you deal with CBD and ter- yeah. with regards to federal regulations. A week from tomorrow, the FDA is finally going to take this up, right. at least at the committee right. level. Right. What are you expecting out of this? Do you think we're going to actually get to a, to a point, even in 2019, where maybe we get yeah. some sort of clarity? Well, we've been pushing our position, yeah. which is if they, if they continue to not regulate, it doesn't mean that it's not out there. Mm-hmm. And so the principal problem with CBD now is, is it actually as measured, as dosed? Did it come through the sources that you expected? So the FDA has a safety obligation, and they should be stepping into it minimum, regulate the process and positioning. Mm-hmm. And so I think they will. That creates a platform where you can actually use the ingredient to create outcomes which become registered medical products. And so they have to take the first step. Otherwise, we're still stuck sort of in that nowhere land. Speaking of uh, CBD and Clarity, we got news that Square, the payment processor, they're going to start for the first time facilitating online uh, CBD sales. How much, how slow or what kind of progress are you seeing um, about with cannabis just within the banking and financial system? Because obviously that's a huge, uh, it's a huge impediment to business. It is. And that really is why safe banking is, um, and we believe safe banking will make it to the floor of the House this year, and we believe it'll pass this year, and ultimately we believe it passes through the Senate next year. Safe banking essentially is a bill 
that will make it uh, permissible for banks and insurance companies to essentially bank the business. Um, we need to take cash out of the system. Right. We need to bank it correctly. And it's as much of a tracking uh, the capital in the space, but it's also um, making it safer. People believe that these dispensaries have all sorts of cash. That actually poses a lot of risk for folks that are working in those dispensaries. So it makes sense for this business to be banked. It makes sense um, from our vantage point for it ultimately to be a legal uh, drug. Bruce, going back to the mega merger here, June 19th yes. is when the shareholder voters, acreages shareholders get to pass judgment. As we know, one key investor, your long term since 2015, Cresco Capital, has said, look, we're backing it. But then there are some activist investors out there who are worried, as we said, the key issue that eventually acreage could be more valuable. What is it that shareholders aren't getting? What is it? We hear it's a de-risking situation for acreage. But what if you're not about de-risking as an investor? What if you're what? about a maximizing, maximizing your opportunity? So right off, the, they get 250 per share here. Thank you for the option price. So they're getting cash up front into their pocket. Then over the course of the next 12 or 18 or 24 months, we're lending in everything we've learned, everything we know of free license. And there are a lot of MSOs and there are a lot of good MSOs. What's going to happen with acreage is they have all the tools and advantages to be the number one. And so I, I think it's the certainty of success is what's going to drive the people to see that the combined entity is going to be globally dominant. Have You're getting exposure through this transaction as soon as it happens. We'll be in 20, 25 countries by then on Canopy side. Wow. This thing cranks up with medical claim files that have been based on work in Germany or in Canada. Everything comes in as soon as it's permissible to the benefit of everybody in acreage. It is, if you look at it, the chance of a big win and it all working goes through the roof compared to everybody just staying on their own. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.